0: From Gimlet Media, this is surprisingly awesome. I am Adam McKay. And I'm Adam Davidson. This is the podcast where we take a subject
1: that seems very boring, very lame, and... We try and make it awesome. We try and reveal its internal awesomeness that has been hidden and locked away behind a kernel of boring. That's it. And uh, today's subject,
0: which you do not know... Is that correct? I do not know. I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to say today's subject is... So, yes, that is our topic. Tub thumping by the band Chumbawamba. It was a big hit in 1997. The band chambawamba in American culture has sort of been categorized as a one hit wonder, and that's a song that got played to death for about six months reactions please okay
1: um all right, so initial reaction is i mean I obviously remember that I think everyone remembers that song it's yeah, it's a nice song i mean it's it's or It's I enjoy listening to it. All right. Well, what if I told
0: you that tub thumping this song that everyone remembers as a what silly feel good pop song was actually the work of an anarchist slash socialistic collective. And it was part of their deliberate 30 year strategy to empower the working class and to overthrow the status quo of England.
1: I honestly don't know if you're doing a bit right now. I mean, it seems like, like I could imagine they said that in an interview or something, but I'm, I'm skeptical. So the first thing you gotta get straight is that
0: Chumbawamba is not the silly, ridiculous one-hit wonder. They're not Baja men, they're not Vanilla Ice, they're closer to the Sex Pistols or the X. Chumbawamba started all the way back in 1982 uh, as a punk band in the north of England. And this is what they sounded like then.
2: One of the reasons we we came together as a band was because we we found a huge, old, empty Victorian house.
0: This is Baf Wally, one of the founding members of Chumbawamba.
2: And we thought, let's take it over. So it was about two or three of us went in and moved in. And then over the next year, we just gathered these people that had you know that needed somewhere to stay and and usually when they moved in because they moved in because we were friends with them and we'd say do you fancy being in this band you know you don't have to you know be able to play an instrument and everything we've just got this idea for a band what do you think do you want to get involved everything that we did was based on that anarchist principle of everybody has a equal say equal pay we all get treated the same we've all got an equal amount of um, um participation in this 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 idea and we just made we we made made the best of it basically, and we didn't pay rent, so it was great.
1: They they came out of a scene in which bands do not make melodic pop music at all.
0: So uh, this is Fraser McAlpine. He uh, reviews albums for the BBC and is very familiar with Chumbawamba.
1: They came out of uh, really really. It's like fanzine culture, homemade music. It's similar to DC punk and uh, you know the LA punk scene as well, that sort of thing. It was all about attitude, but not necessarily about being able to make music work.
0: So that's what our band Chumbawamba was up to in the early 80s. They were having a blast. They were causing trouble. They're living in a squat, playing shows in basements. Writing a global hit like tub thumping was the furthest thing from their minds at that time. But then, at the beginning of 1984,
2: this happens. Good morning, you're watching TVM. Now, faced with a loss of 20,000 jobs in the next year, will the miners be driven into a nationwide strike? Scottish miners have been called...
0: All right, so Davidson, remember a little while back, I asked you to prepare some background on the 1984 miner strike in Britain? Yeah, I actually had no idea why you asked me to do that. So this is where you come in. Uh, This is your chance. Brief us on the coal miners' strike of 1984.
1: I mean, as I remember, Great Britain had nationalized its coal industry, and many parts of Great Britain were dependent on that coal industry. Um, When Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, she felt that this nationalized coal industry had become a drain on the economy. There were all these mines that weren't really productive. So in 1984, Thatcher sought to close about 20 of these coal mines. And of course, for the areas where those coal mines would be closed, it was devastating news. So the coal miners went on strike and an attempt not just to get the coal mines open, but it became pretty quickly an attempt to take down Margaret Thatcher. So this strike spread and spread. And soon communities
0: all across the north of England, where Chumbawamba lived, found themselves consumed by this strike. And as the number of striking miners grew, so did the police presence trying to stop them. In other words, things got very ugly.
2: Police came under a hail of missiles from a group of miners who disobeyed strict NUM instructions. Then in an angry reaction, police drew their truncheons and charged.
0: To get a sense of this massive collision of powers, we talked to Jonathan Schneer, who's a professor of British history at Georgia Tech.
1: The miners struck long and hard, and they were saying that they were defending a way of life and that they were defending an, an ethos, an ethos of solidarity. Um, and they were, you know, often second, third, fourth generation coal miners, and that Thatcher was trying to destroy. Uh, an essential uh, part of English culture or British culture.
2: Most of the members of Chumbawamba grew up in in various sort of working class uh, areas. So when the miners' strike came along, it was a, it was a wake up call that, that that said to us, look, this is where you where you came from. These are this is your your heritage and your family and your history. Suddenly we thought, yes, this our our ideas of things like veganism and pacifism took a back seat to the idea of, look, this is about community and, and friends and family, and this is this is the stuff we want to be involved in. So Chumbawamba gets involved, right? And they're Chumbawamba,
0: so they don't just get involved by holding picket signs, you know? They start touring around England and they're playing shows at the picket lines. They help the miners raise money. Uh, they even recorded an entire EP about the strike. And when the whole thing was over, they realized they liked this. They liked doing music that was about something. I mean, it was, yeah, it was fun to do the punk stuff and you know spray paint a wall and cause trouble, but this actually meant something. So they didn't wanna go back to the basement shows and suddenly the whole punk scene to them looked a little silly. Uh, they wanted to continue fighting injustice where they saw it and they wanted to try and bring about real change with their music. So they realize they're going to need a broader audience than their small but devoted, you know, punk fans. So they look to reinvent themselves. They look to expand to a larger audience. And this is a really fascinating and seminal moment, not just for Chumbawamba, but for all of music. Here's Bafwali to explain.
2: Very early on when we, we first got interested in politics and, poli- and political music, it seemed that there were, there were sort of two strands of political music. On the one hand, there was this sort of very dry finger in the ear of sort of folk music protest music often one man and his acoustic guitar and uh, and on the other hand there was there was sort of three or four angry angry young men shouting very loud and turning turning their amplifiers up really loud and again it was all about being quite dry and and angry and we just thought in in our daily lives we we were constantly sort of um having fun with each other and and playing practical jokes and we thought we want to bring that onto into what we do, and we want to make humour part of part of what we do. And there are some precedents, you know, like a, a very early sort of Frank Zappa albums that we used to love, which are very political and biting and satirical, but but really really funny. You know, we wanted to make people laugh, but at the same time, actually, there's there's a lot of serious stuff here. Let's let's think about what this are saying and try to to get it out into the world instead of keeping it into a in, in a little enclosed sort of club.
0: This band is now on a full-on mission. You know, they start trying different things. They try everything. Instead of ranting about Margaret Thatcher, they try sampling her voice. The police have been wonderful. The police have been
1: wonderful. I think it's totally and utterly false. Totally and utterly false.
0: Instead of guitars, they try drum machines. Instead of shouting about economic inequality, they tried singing about it.
2: The summer was over, the season unkind, in harvest a snow, how uncommon to find. The times were oppressive, and well be it known, that hunger will strongest offenses break down. And for a, for a so-called punk band at the time, that was... Completely unusual, but for us it was it was like the most sort of punk thing that we could do. And up till then we'd we'd had really good relationship with uh, the people from the magazine Maximum Rock and Roll in America, and they they had a lot of influence at the time, and they used to review our records, and they were very very supportive. And we, we stayed at their house in San Francisco, and it was really really good relationship. Now we brought out this this album of a cappella folk songs, which are very very political, and uh, they said no, it's not punk, we're not reviewing it. And they refused to review it. And uh, to us, that summed up a lot of those arguments about what punk was. In that it, it burst in, it burst from this idea of, of of not having rules and about opposing authority and all that sort of thing. And it very, very quickly became became a set of rules. And the, the extent to which people held on to those rules was uh, incredible to watch, really.
0: So coming up after the break, we're going to see how Chumbawamba meant their greatest musical ally, Boy George. Oh, he's good. I'm kidding. That is not what we're doing after the break. That would be a great twist, though. No, no. We're going to hear how Chumbawamba went from making music like this. (laughs) To this. All right, welcome back. So by 1996, Chumbawamba had become these musical drifters. They're punk friends and punk labels. They're not really into them anymore because uh, they're not punk. And it's not clear they've actually made any difference in the world. And then a weird thing happens. The type of music they've started playing around with, experimental, sort of dancey, electronic beats, starts to become popular and suddenly Chumbawamba grabs the attention of a major record label, EMI. EMI is against everything that Chumbawamba stands for. They'd even had a song on a compilation album that was called Beep EMI. But when this offer comes in, they were just like, wait a minute, okay, we've spent all these years searching for the best possible way to reach people, and maybe, despite the fact we still have punk leanings, we still have cool friends who won't respect us, we think maybe this is it. So they think about this long and hard, and they go back and forth, because after all, they're a democracy, right? And so finally, eventually, they say yes. And a few months later, you would turn on your radio, and you would hear this. And practically overnight, this little group of squatters and punk rockers and anarchists, they become a giant household name. Tub Thumping was one of the biggest hits in 1997. Topping the charts all over the globe, it was, without exaggeration, everywhere. And you know, we remember Tub Thumping as this big, fun, happy party song it's actually more of a portrait of the working class in the UK,
2: and how you can knock them down, but they're going to get up again. Here's Boff Wally to explain. The place where I lived in Leeds in North England, the, um, there was a pub nearby called the Ford Green, and every every weekend, our next door neighbour, who um, was uh, an old Irish guy, would would get ridiculously drunk and stagger up the street, usually whilst whilst we you know, after we'd gone to bed. And uh, try and get his key in the door, and he, he, you know, and he couldn't do it, and he would fall over, and his wife would lean out the window and say, "Come on, you know, get in the door," and he'd be, "Oh God, God, I can't make it," and it it was just funny. And he eventually would get himself up and dust himself off, and and he'd be fine, and then he'd go off back to work on the Monday. And so we we wanted to write a song about. this ordinary, very, very ordinary sort of sequence of events, which which is basically that a lot of people have jobs they don't particularly enjoy doing and they, they don't have much money or opportunity, but they find ways to enjoy themselves and they go out and they have a good time and and at the end of it, they'll, they'll always they'll always get up off the floor and get on with life.
0: So my co-host, Adam Davidson, mm. is a financial reporter uh, very aware of economics, very knowledgeable guy. You know, has worked in public radio over here. Writes for the New York Times. Uh, I would say he's a little conservative to moderate. We we have many arguments about free trade.
2: I'm assuming uh, he's not there with you, is he? He is not.
0: He okay. comes from the Economist point of view. I come okay. from the uh, you know, fifty cents an hour is is slave labor is never good point of view, okay. and he does not. Um, right. so we argue quite a bit about it. If you're gonna sum up what what tub thumping's about, if you're gonna tell Adam Davidson what it's about and and what you wanted that song to do and how you want people to react to it, what would you say to him?
2: I'd say that, that um that the, the the way the song's meant to work is that um, is that on a very personal level everybody has a has a, a sense of, of um of dignity and I think that a lot of capitalism is about trying to strip people of of that dignity and to get them to fit into a mould which serves uh, the bigger machine of of economics and of of money making and of of wealth wealth distribution. And so I think if you can if you can sort of try and and for us just as songwriters, if it was if we could try and give people that sense of you know you 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 can be something and you can have that resilience and you can have. Some sort of optimism in the face of this sort of um, mass wage slavery system that seems to be going on everywhere. Then that's a good thing. And so one of our one of our roles as a as a as a pop group as a music group is to try and provide that that sense of uh, being able to be uplifted rather than oh isn't everything awful all the time?
0: Yeah. So Adam, <laughs> I, I, obviously you're a lovely person. You're a father. You're a, a, a husband. You're a good friend. But we do know you view the working people of the world as statistics uh, to be manipulated, bent, and destroyed for the amusement of uh, oligarchs, billionaires,
1: and the power elite. Is that fair? I mean that – I would definitely change a few of those words. I mean I don't disagree (laughs) with what you said. I just feel like it misses. But I will say I I do like the idea of I get knocked down and I get up again. Um, I think the human condition – is one of power and powerful people taking from the less powerful. And I don't, so far this is beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think that the reason I am a capitalist, the reason I like capitalism is not because it's perfect. It's not because it doesn't do that. It's not because there isn't shredding away of dignity. It's because there's less that, that um, I think, before capitalism came to England and then spread to the rest of Europe and North America and then eventually Japan and other places, I th- everywhere where capitalism hadn't existed, you see the starkest version of not not some kind of quote unquote wage slavery, but actual real slavery. You saw people, you know, majority of children dying before the age of five. You saw. Um, people with extremely limited choices, not enough calories to survive. And capitalism, I think, moved the needle in the right direction. Definitely didn't move it all the way or even necessarily far enough. And I, and I am pretty open to the arguments that in the last 30 years, the needle in, in a lot of countries has moved the, in the wrong direction and that you know power is, um, is rearing its head in ways that are, that are bad. But I don't think that simply observing that I live in a capitalist system and I see injustice or I see bad things, therefore I can say capitalism is bad. That, that I reject. I just don't know that there's a non-capitalist system where you would rather live or where you would find more dignity. This actually gets to, I think, our like argument number one. This really gets to our essential, I don't want to say, is it disagreement or different perspective? my inclination is to go very deep read you know the the technical literature understand the real policy uh, issues that's my inclination it's the opposite of tub thumping it's the opposite of a big chanty fun song that's going to get a big crowd dancing it's
0: so my my side of it is that i believe that well crafted intelligent populism is essential to allowing the policy wonks to do their job, that you have to have a popular consensus. There has to be a grassroots movement for real change to happen. That's why I love tub thumping. I think it's it's one thing to go on and on about all the details of wage decline and the middle class decreasing, and it's another thing to hear a song like that as a beginning point. I think what's exciting about this band is, and, and I personally, it resonates for me, is I'm a guy who does, you know, mostly has done big commercial comedies. And we used to do street theater when we were in Chicago. And, you know, I advertised my own suicide and more performance art stuff. And when I started doing these comedies, I got a little flack from some of my friends. Like, how can you do a movie for a big studio? And When you did Anchorman. and Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we always went back to the fact that, well, you know, guess what? These movies play in Mississippi. They play in Oklahoma. Like, we're able to reach audiences that would never get to hear this. And
2: talking to Boff, from uh chumbawamba he had the same thing we were getting the opportunity to go and play this song on telly talk to people on sort of national radio all over the world and and you know we'd be on like some breakfast shows with with lots of you know ridiculously happy smiley djs uh, disc jockeys and and uh, and wanting us to be just fun 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 and we'd be we'd be sort of trying to uh, um Subvert it by basically talking about, you know, for instance, um, we would find out that there'd been there was a, a big strike going on in the town at the time of where the radio station was, and we'd we'd say, yeah, we've noticed that you know this strike's going on, and we'd just like to say that we support the workers that are involved in that, and we under and you you just get that stuff in, they go, oh ho, oh, that's really funny, that's great. And anyway, um, trying desperately to move off the subject, but that was great. It was a really good challenge for us to try and um, use it in some way. So at the height of their
0: fame, Chumbawamba looked for all kinds of ways to draw attention to issues they felt strongly about, because, you know, that's why they did this, right?
1: Chumbawamba over in Britain are known for two
0: things. Once again, this is Fraser McAlpine. He reviews albums for the BBC.
1: They're known for the song Tub Thumping, and they're known for the 1998 Brit Awards, uh, where Dan But No Bacon one of the challenging members of the band took an ice bucket filled with ice water and tipped it over the deputy prime minister's head.
0: There was another one where a member of the band was on a TV interview and said they're perfectly fine with people shoplifting their album (laughs) because it's big corporations that are selling the album. Exactly. So F them, which can you imagine Britney Spears saying that actually, maybe I could imagine her saying that. Um, so the band sold their music to General Motors to use in a car commercial. And everyone was like, what the, you can't do that. You're supposed to be cool. But what they did was they took the $100,000 they earned and they gave it directly to social justice outlets and charities.
1: So I, I have to say, McKay, I am, it's very clear to me why you love them. Cause this, they are your model. They are who you are in your heart and you are them. <laughs> They are. They're kind of the
0: ultimate populist activist story. I mean, I don't know who else has done it this well on such a, you know, in such a large stage. I get, you know, Green Day had American Idiot was a giant hit. That was pretty good. But Chumbawamba, man, they never blinked. They were always pushing it every chance they had. So about two or three years ago, this band breaks up. And I tweeted about their breakup and said, I'm really sad. And people thought I was kidding. But I really was. This is really one of the most interesting bands. And the song Tub Thumping is a really important song that signaled the end of an era, an era dominated by unions and the working class and opportunity for all that changed. And this song is a sad uh, acknowledgement of that time past and also a victorious vow for the future that the working
1: class will rise again. I'm really interested. I like Tub Thumping. I will never listen to that song the same way again. I think I'm thinking about pop music differently. If I'm at a party and someone says, oh, that guy over there, that's Boff. He created Chumbawamba. I'm running over to him. I want to talk to him. I want to learn from him. I'll take it. I'll take it. I think it's a success. Yeah. yeah. I think Uh, this is a success. I think you did it.
0: Pretty damn good. Now, I want to end the podcast with another Chumbawamba song uh, that I think maybe even should become the theme song of this podcast, a song called uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong. And thanks again for listening, everyone. This episode of Surprisingly Awesome was produced by Jesse Rudoy, Caitlin Kenny. It was edited by Peter Clowney and Alex Bloomberg. Our theme music is by the fabulous Nicholas Bertel. Uh, Jesse Rudoy mixed this episode. And our ad music is by
1: Build Buildings. We'll be back in two weeks with more Surprisingly Awesome. We'd love your ideas of topics that lots of people think sound really boring, but are secretly awesome. Please tweet at us at Surprising Show or visit our Facebook page. You can also email us at surprisinglyawesome at gimletmedia.com. Surprisingly Awesome is a production of Gimlet Media.
0: I remember when the song hit, I was working at Saturday Night Live and our legendary producer and the creator of the show, Lorne Michaels, who's a very dry, intimidating figure, I was alone in the office with him. I was head writer at the time and he just said, I haven't told anyone this, but I really like that I get knocked down song.